Our text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 14, verses 42 through 52. And I will read those passages, Scripture for us. Beginning with verse 42, Mark 14. Rise up, let us go, lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And immediately, while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve. And with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not, but the scripture must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked." Christianity is the one true religion revealed by God in the Holy Scriptures. There is no other rival religion to Christianity. And Christianity, dear ones, is absolutely unique in many ways when compared to the multitudes of false religions which vie for the affections of men in the world today. One of the ways in which Christianity is absolutely unique and stands far and above all other false religions, all false religions, is that the everlasting God became flesh and dwelt among us in order that He might redeem particular sinners from their sin and from the curse of the law. In the false religions of this world, one might find examples in which their God might set some type of an example of love for the followers to imitate or to emulate. But Christ not only set an example of love for others to follow, but also by the power of His love, He became a man and He delivered those who hated Him from their guilt and from the condemnation which they deserved. And He delivered them from the power of sin so that they might live for Him in this life. In no other religion will the power of love be demonstrated 
in such an unfathomable way as in Christianity. Search for such a love, dear ones, in every and any corner of the world. Search for that kind of love in the highest mountain and in the lowest depth and valley. Search for that kind of love in a mother or in a father or in a husband or in a wife or in a brother or in a sister or in a minister or in a king. It will not be found. You'll find nothing that can compare to the everlasting love which Christ has for his unworthy bride, his undeserving bride, the church. The love of Christ, dear ones, involuntarily laying down his life a sacrificial, as a sacrificial lamb for guilty sinners is what makes Christ so approachable. It is what makes us want to come to Jesus Christ when we understand that love. How can we reject and turn our backs upon that kind of love that He has for us when we realize what we deserve from a holy and a just God? As I mentioned earlier in the service, this is the second part of a sermon wherein the power of Christ's love is evidenced. First of all, in the betrayal of Christ, we see His love manifested, the power that love manifested in His betrayal. And then secondly, we see the power of Christ's love manifested even in His arrest. And we want to look at those two things this Lord's Day. Actually, in the first part of, the, of this sermon, we did consider the power of Christ's love manifested, but we want to continue in the second part of this sermon, seeing how Christ manifested His love. And so let us consider, again, the first point, the power of Christ's love in the betrayal of Christ. Look with me again in your Bibles at Mark chapter 14, verses 42 through 45, where we read these words. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given him a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. Before we look more closely at the text itself, let me give you very briefly a chronology of events as they occurred once Christ and His disciples arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. First of all, the Lord and His eleven disciples arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas, during this period of time, is gathering 
the soldiers together, going, having gone to the chief priests, to bring a mighty multitude of soldiers to take Christ prisoner. So that there are the eleven disciples, and Judas is outdoing his insidious and wicked deeds. The Lord then takes Peter, James, and John with him, separate them from the eleven, and they go into the garden, whereby the Lord might spend time in prayer, anguishing over what he is about to experience by way of the suffering that would be brought upon him from men, and most importantly, the wrath of God which he would suffer on behalf of his people. Three times the Lord goes to pray, three times he returns to find his disciples sleeping. He tells them, watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. As we see in verse 42, finally, the Lord Jesus, after the third time, says, enough, let's get up, let's go meet the betrayers at hand. And so we see that Judas arrives with approximately 600 Roman soldiers. In John chapter 18, verse 3, it refers to the multitude as a cohort. That's a technical term which refers to, we might say, a similar kind of an expression in our language of Italian or, or something of that nature. It referred to 600 Roman soldiers that were brought to take one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ does not run from them. He goes out to meet them. Jesus then goes directly to them and says, Whom do you seek? They respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And according to John chapter 18, verses 5 through 6, the Lord Jesus says, I am. I am. And as he says, I am, which is the name of God that by which God reveals himself in the Old Testament to Moses, the burning bush, 600 Roman soldiers. In addition to that, the temple police all fall backwards at the power of God manifested by the Son of God. We then find chronologically that the Lord Jesus Christ lovingly protects and defends his own disciples by saying that if he is the one whom they seek, then let these go their way, his disciples, so that he might prevent them from entering into a temptation which they were not ready to bear. For the text in John chapter 18 says that he said, let them go their way because he was to fulfill the scripture that those to whom God had given him, he has not lost one. And so rather than lose one because they were not ready for that particular temptation and could not endure it, the Lord preserves them from even entering into that temptation. This is covered in the first part of the sermon, which uh, we referred to earlier. <clears throat> this now brings us to where we are in the text which has been read thus far. We come now to the actual betrayal of Christ by Judas in Mark 14, verses 44 through 45. 
Now, Judas had given previous notice to the chief priests and to the Roman soldiers that the one whom he kissed was the one whom they were to seize and to take prisoner, according to Mark 14, verse 44. And when Judas says, take him and lead him away safely, we are not to understand that Judas meant take him and lead him away without any harm. Make him comfortable, as it were. Safely in that context does not mean that at all. It may have had, it may have, again, safely, may have that connotation today, but that's not what it meant when the English Bible, the King James Version, was written. The word safely here would be better translated securely. And it's used in a very similar way in Acts 16, verse 23, where after Paul and Silas were whipped, and then placed into prison, they were, the, the jailer was told, keep them there safely. That didn't mean make them comfortable. That wasn't the idea. Make them secure. Don't let them out of your sight. Make sure they don't get away. And that was what Judas had told the chief priests, the Roman soldiers, take him away securely. Judas was in effect saying, once you have seized Christ, don't let him get away for I have seen him, or at least the implication may be, I've seen him banished through a multitude in times past when he was seized. You remember, for example, in Luke 4, verses 29 through 30, he was in his hometown of Nazareth. And he had said some things there that they despised and hated and they rushed him off as quickly as possible to a, the, a cliff and were going to throw him over the edge of the cliff. But the scripture says that he simply walked through them. <laughs> he just escaped. Though they had him, he simply escaped. I would suggest miraculously escaped. And so... No doubt Judas witnessed this, said, watch this guy very carefully. Now, why would Judas betray Christ with a kiss? Since a kiss was both a token of friendship and allegiance. What is the significance of betraying Christ or identifying Christ with a kiss? Well, was it an indication of Judas being torn between his love for Christ and his lust for power? Is this recorded in Scripture in order that we should in some way feel sorry for Judas? Poor Judas here as he struggles with what he is about to do? I don't think that's the point at all. To the contrary, I believe the kiss of Judas... And the greeting of Judas, where he says, Master, Master, demonstrate rather the callousness and the hardness of this traitor's heart. For Judas could have simply given the chief priest the information they needed as to where to find Christ. He could have stood over and simply pointed to Christ and said, That's the man. Why did he kiss him? 
Why did he say, Master, Master? I would submit this is a cold, calculated, and shameless betrayal. Wherein Judas is in effect rubbing it in with the height of sarcasm when he betrays Christ with a kiss and hails Christ as the Master. One can almost see the wicked smile upon the face of Judas and the taunting tone in his voice when he does utter those words, Master, Master. You see, Judas is not hiding somewhere in the background. Judas is now in his glory, if you will. Because Judas has long lusted for that limelight. Judas has long lusted to be in that place of power and authority in Christ's kingdom. But as he hears Christ talking about his death, as he hears that the Pharisees, as Christ prophesies that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests are going to take him and put him to death, Judas decides to cast his lot not with Christ, but with those who would take Christ's life. Judas loves the very place where he is now. He's leading the Roman armies. He's at the head of the Roman armies. He's at the head of the priests and, 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 and the Sanhedrin. And he's leading them to seize Christ. Beloved, here we see, I think very clearly, that once a traitor turns his back upon Christ and His truth. Once one betrays Christ and His truth, very often that one becomes the greatest foe and enemy to the cause of Christ, no matter how close they appear to be to Christ. He may outwardly give that kiss, but that kiss is a kiss of death. He may outwardly use respectful terms and titles as master, master, but they are used with deceit. James Sharp appeared to be one of the greatest friends of the Covenanters in the 1640s there in Scotland. But when he betrayed the cause of Christ and turned his back upon that covenanted cause, he became one of the greatest persecutors the Covenanters ever knew. Very often, dear ones, in an attempt to salve the guilty conscience of the traitor, he is driven to oppose the cause of Christ that he wants to defend it with more vigor and more zeal than the ordinary critic. And I would simply submit to you, dear ones, the danger of falling away from the truth. Because there is a judicial blindness that God brings to the eyes of those who fall away from that which they know to be true. Just as in the case of Judas. There is a hardness of heart that God brings upon those who know the truth and turn their backs upon it. And they do the unthinkable as we see in the case of Judas. Mark's Gospel does not record the response of Christ to this kiss 
that's offered by Judas, but I believe Christ's response is significant. And it is found for us in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50, wherein the Lord Jesus responds to Judas after having been kissed by Judas. Friend, the Lord Jesus begins the sentence with, Friend, wherefore art thou come? I would submit to you here, this was a stinging rebuke that was given to Judas. The Lord could have said to Judas or called Judas a traitor. He could have called him a fool. He could have called him the son of perdition or a crafty serpent or a deceitful enemy or a shameless villain, all of which would have been true. But I don't believe these names would have pricked the conscience of Judas nearly as much as the word and the name that Jesus used, friend. For this is how Christ treated Judas for over three years as a friend. Christ is saying, in effect, how have I injured you? How have I harmed you? Have I not even offered you everlasting life? The forgiveness of sin. Have I not treated you as a close friend of mine? Is this how you show your friendship? I would suggest that here Christ is knocking Judas over with a feather. Friend. Dear ones, I dare say that the most convicting and severe rebukes of the Lord that are laid upon our hearts at times appeal to all that Christ has done for us. I know in my own life that I have fallen more often upon my face and cried before the Lord and repented of sin when I have considered the mercy and the grace of God shown to me. The word friend, dear ones, did not crush the stubborn heart of Judas. And I ask you today, all of you who are here, does the word friend... Does the word friend, as members of the visible church, does the word friend crush your heart that Christ would call you friend? For our sinless Savior is called, in Matthew 11, 19, a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. Christ should have condemned us with His holy wrath and endless torment in hell as godless enemies. We would have deserved it. His justice would have been duly paid. Why would the sinless Christ desire to be a friend to sinners and even to the chief of sinners? It is, dear ones, I would submit to you, the unfathomable and comprehensible love 
of Jesus Christ. That is the only answer why Christ would call us his friends. And so, dear ones, when we feel so very far from the Lord due to our own sin, when we feel far from the Lord due to our having left our first love, even the Lord Jesus Christ, when we feel far from the Lord due to our neglect of Christ and His ordinances, due to the pressures and the stresses in life, the problems in our marriage, our finances, our afflictions and trials through which we go, let us flee to our friend, not run away from our friend, a friend of sinners. Let us find forgiveness. Let us find repentance and a zeal to live a holy life in Him who is the friend of weak and struggling sinners who put their faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation. I would simply remind you, dear ones, if you do not receive Christ as a friend today, now, you may very likely stand before Christ as a righteous and holy judge on that final day. And receive from Him no longer mercy, but His everlasting wrath and condemnation. Come to Jesus as a friend today so that you do not stand before Him as an all-consuming judge on that final day. The second point, the main point of, of our sermon today is the power of Christ's love in the arrest of Christ. And consider with me Mark 14, verses 46 through 52. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. We now move from the betrayal of Christ to the arrest of Christ. And we see first in Mark 14:46 that the soldiers laid hold on Christ. And I would simply have you remember that just prior to this, Christ could have escaped a long time before this. He did not have to go out to meet them. He did, however, do so. Voluntarily, he went out to meet them. And then they laid hold upon him. They laid hold upon the great I Am, the Jehovah of the Bible. Jehovah God. And it's not because 
they themselves had the power to lay hold on him, he allows them to seize him, not as a helpless victim, but as a willing savior. He did not go out as one who was violently seized against his will, but rather as a lamb, he voluntarily went out to meet them out of love for his people. He went out to meet them. And you know, it was all of his people. Not a nameless, faceless group of people chosen from all eternity, but you who trust in him. He went out to meet them with you specifically, who have put your faith and confidence and trust in him, with you in mind. An amazing thought. Now, once they had seized the Lord with their hands, Peter goes into action, as we see in Mark 14, verse 47. There we see, in, actually in John 18:10, it says, that this was Peter, the disciple, who grabbed this sword. And he began swinging it, no doubt, wildly. And I doubt very seriously that he intended to simply cut off this man's ear. Why simply do that? What did that accomplish? Simply to intend to cut off somebody's ear. I would suggest that he probably didn't know how to handle a sword very adequately, intended to do more damage, but all he did was to sever this man's ear from this man's head. Peter's zeal and love for the Lord, I believe, isn't manifested here, but it is ill-timed. Peter had said earlier when Christ prophesied that he would deny him three times that he would not only not deny the Lord, but he would be willing to even go and die with the Lord. And I think he meant it. Though he did not realize how weak he actually was. I think he meant it. And I believe this is, this is indeed proof of the sincere love that Peter had for his Savior. But here we see, I would submit to you, the zeal of Peter, but a zeal which is not according to knowledge. There is a lot of heat, but not a whole lot of light, because he has rejected the words of Christ, wherein Christ prophesied that he would deny him three times. And he said, Lord, that can't happen. <laughs> I don't believe that. He was basically saying, Lord, you're a liar. That's just not going to happen. I will not do that. Very often, dear ones, we set out for Christ with great zeal and we begin swinging our swords. All kinds of heat, but not a whole lot of light and knowledge. And many times we do more damage because we're very zealous 
but we don't know how to use our zeal. And we don't know what we should be standing for and how we should stand for it and at what times we should say and stand for that truth. It's very important that we not only be zealous, that is important, that we be zealous for Christ, but it's also important that we know the truth. That we are firmly grounded in the truth of Jesus Christ so that our zeal has an impact for Jesus Christ in the lives of those with whom we fellowship in our own families. Because there is an inconsistency that will be manifested. Both if we have knowledge and do not show zeal and if we have zeal but do not show knowledge. And so it is not either or, it is both and. Let us therefore grow in both zeal and let us grow in knowledge of Christ. Let us not put one behind us and say, that's what I want. Let us take them both and say, they are important in my Christian life. Remember that Jesus said, zeal for thy house has consumed me. Let zeal for Christ's house, God's house, even His church, consume us as well. But let it consume us with knowledge of His will. Mark's Gospel, dear ones, does not mention what happened next. And so again we go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 52. And there we find the response of the Lord to Peter's actions. Matthew 26, verse 52, where it says, Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And I would say that this is not a condemnation of lawful self-defense. That is certainly taught throughout the Scripture, that one may lawfully defend one's own life, one's own property, for the life of others. That is taught in God's Word. And so it's not a condemnation of self-defense and self-preservation. But Christ would here have Peter realize that this was not the appointed time for him to be rescued from death. He was in fact appointed unto death. Again, Peter did not understand the will of God. Though he had heard it with his ears, Christ had said it a number of times that he must die. He did not receive that and it was not mixed with faith in his understanding. The Lord did not need Peter to rescue him. We find in Matthew 26, verse 53, because the Lord Jesus said if he desired, he could be rescued by calling upon twelve legions of mighty angels. Six thousand 
being in a legion, this would be 72,000 angels, if we were to consider this a literal number. That's a lot of angels. 72,000 angels. I'm sure he could have called however many angels there are that have been created to his rescue and completely demolished those who come to take him captive. But he did not do so. And the question is, why didn't he call upon angels, 12 legions of angels, if in fact he could have done so? Obviously, again, he sees that he is a sacrificial lamb. He is going to the cross. He has a mission and a purpose which he must fulfill in laying down his life for those chosen from all eternity and those whom the Spirit would draw into Christ Jesus. He has a mission to lay down his life to purchase them from the guilt and the condemnation of God. I ask you, what kind of love would Christ have manifested if he had gone kicking and screaming to the cross? Would you have been uh, really impressed about his love for you? Is it not the very fact that he willingly, voluntarily went to the cross to lay down his life for his people that draws us unto himself? Christ faced the torments and the anguish of hell and he did so voluntarily for the love that he had for an unlovely and wretched bride. He made, dear ones, an ugly bride beautiful by his self-sacrificial love. It was not our loveliness, it was not our lovableness that caused Christ to love us, it was because He chose to love us. There was no constraint upon Christ to love us from all eternity. But He chose to love those whom He had chosen to save. Wretched sinners, undeserving as they are, And dear ones, I would suggest to you that we, in a similar sense, can make those who are unlovely beautiful in our eyes by our love for them, by our self-sacrificial love. Husbands and wives struggle at times in marriages, go through difficult times. And they may say, I don't love that person well you know what love is not based upon the loveliness and the lovableness of that person otherwise Christ would have never loved us we can set our love upon those to whom we are united whether it's in our church or in our family or outside of our church and in our Uh, in our workplace, wherever it is, we can set our love upon them. And in so doing, that person takes on 
and many times a different appearance to us. Interestingly, Matthew, Mark, and John's Gospel omit what Luke 22:51 includes here, and that is simply the healing of the year, the servant. In Matthew, Mark, and John, the man's ear is not said to be healed, though it was. But in Luke 22:51, we find that Jesus picked up the ear off of the ground, placed it back on the head of this man and healed that ear, made it whole. Can you imagine just the pandemonium and confusion that was going on at that particular time? Think with me just for a moment what's going on here. Christ is seized and taken captive. No doubt that upsets the disciples. Peter goes into action, starts swinging his sword, and cuts off this man's ear. This man starts shouting, no doubt, out of pain. The Roman soldiers probably think, here comes an insurrection. They're on their guard immediately. And Christ calmly reaches down and picks up the ear and heals the man, bringing peace into a situation that is so confusing, that is so filled with turmoil, that is so out of control, if you will, by all appearances, he brings peace to a situation. Just as much as when that, those winds and those waves were about to turn over that little boat in which the disciples and Christ were in, and Christ said, Peace, be still. An immediate calm came to the situation. So Christ demonstrates his power again in this situation. What a powerful Savior we have. What a merciful Savior because again, just as when the Lord knocked down these soldiers by saying, I am, he was demonstrating that he's the Son of God. They're not taking him. He's laying down his life. And he has the power to destroy them if he chose to do so. And so again, he heals in front of these men. He heals supernaturally, miraculously, showing that he is the Son of God. They are not taking him. He is willingly, voluntarily going along with them. He is the sacrificial lamb. And in so doing, he's calling sinners to repentance. Look at who I am. See that I am Almighty God. And I have the power to heal, to make well, to restore, not only physically, but spiritually. But again, Judas, the chief priests, and the soldiers must have completely rationalized away the miraculous power of Christ to their own destruction. Dear ones, hear me and hear me well. Do not fall into the same trap as did these who saw the miracle of Christ right before their eyes. Saw Christ heal this man and yet turned away from Christ and yet continued to believe a lie. Rationalized and said, well, wasn't that interesting? 
rather than saying, did you just see? This must be God in flesh. They rationalized away. And believe me, dear ones, that is what people do every single day because God manifests His glory around us in His creation. All creation shouts and says, I am created by God. When the gospel of salvation goes forth in faithful preaching, men and women and children hear the gospel declared and yet so many turn a deaf ear and go their own way and they perish to their own destruction because they will not believe that miraculous Son of God. They will not believe that He can save them and He alone can save them from their sins. They believe that they can do something to save themselves. No wonder Christ is called the Prince of Peace. And he brings peace into rebellious hearts, not only into situations like in the Garden of Gethsemane, but dear ones, he brings peace to hearts of men as well. Where there is insurrection and rebellion in our hearts and in our lives that would overthrow and seize and take hold of Christ to cast him out, he is able yet, even with rebels, to subdue them to his own will and to give them a a heart of faith and love for Jesus Christ. And he does so through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, which you are hearing even today. And so, dear ones, when your heart and mind is filled with disorder, confusion, pain, turmoil, Christ is the Prince of Peace to whom you should turn. Don't run away from Christ. Flee to Him. He is the only one who can bring peace to your life, to your marriage, to your workplace, in this world, in this nation, to our church. He is the only one who can bring peace. If you do not come to Christ as the Prince of Peace, it is because you believe you are able to bring peace by your own efforts and you have deceived yourself and you will live to see it. You will live to realize you cannot bring peace in your own life. You can only bring destruction and confusion. I pray you don't have to learn that the hard way, but that you will realize and understand that what God says here is true. Many here today, I'm sure, could stand up and say and plead with the children in our congregation say, please, don't learn the hard way. Don't go through what I have had to go through. Hear the words of Christ and come to Him today as the only one who brings peace. Receive Him as your only hope of eternal salvation. Trust in Him alone. In Mark 14, verses 48 through 49, the Lord Jesus rebukes the chief priests for their cowardly action in apprehending Him secretly by night when he spoke all the time in the temple publicly. He says that they've treated him like a common criminal, like a common thief whom they had to catch by stealth. You know, the Lord Jesus was treated as a criminal because he came to save criminals. This criminal he came to save. 
We're all criminals that fall short of the glory of God. And he came to save guilty, condemned criminals. He became as a criminal in order that we might be justified as righteous. He became as a prisoner in order that we might be set free from our sins and all that our sins deserve. And after the Lord rebuked the chief priests and the religious leaders, then we read that his own disciples fled from him and deserted him. In Mark 14, verses 50 through 52, he was finally deserted and left all alone to suffer the infinite wrath of a holy God for those very ones who deserted him. For those who deserted him. He suffered for those who would not stand up for him, who cowardly turned their backs upon him. And we must include ourselves in that category as well. Here is the power of Christ's love in conclusion, dear ones. So remarkably seen, even when those whom he loved from all eternity had deserted him, he did not desert them. Even when they were unfaithful to him, he was not unfaithful to them, but he kept his promises to secure their salvation. Christ's love and faithfulness, dear ones, was even more gloriously, I would suggest, demonstrated against the dark backdrop of their unfaithfulness. Today, we have the privilege to not only hear of the faithfulness of Christ, in redeeming his people, but we also have the privilege of seeing it visibly in the elements and in the actions that accompany the Lord's Supper. A beautiful, beautiful opportunity for us to further be confirmed in our faith that all that Jesus Christ has said that he would do for us, he has in fact done for us and will continue to do for us. And so let us rejoice today that we have the privilege of hearing of the everlasting love of Christ, the power of that love through the preaching of the gospel, but also evidenced in the sacraments which we will both observe and receive today. Will you stand with me in prayer at this time? Our Heavenly Father, we who are most unworthy and undeserving of the least blessing and favor from Thee, because we have shamefully reproached Christ and treated with contempt the blood which He shed upon the cross by our willful disobedience, whether in our thoughts or our words or our deeds, whether in our corrupt nature. All of these things, O Lord, point to our need of a Savior, but Thou hast shown us the love of Christ. And we praise Thee this day that we can 
receive even the Lord Jesus Christ in his righteousness, which is offered to us in the gospel. That we can receive by faith with an open hand God having given us the strength to extend that hand in faith to receive these promised blessings. O Lord, we pray that we will not despise the offer of that salvation. That we will not despise, Lord, the Savior. That we will not despise, O Lord, the benefits and the gifts But, O Lord, we would rather act as those who are famished and hungry and who sit around a table to eat and partake of Christ and all of his benefits by faith. O Lord our God, we do pray that thou would bless as we do continue our time of worship now, as we do witness and participate in the sacraments which thou hast given to thy church for her encouragement and strengthening. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.